Hello, Brian. Ohisashi Birdie. It is good to be back with you here on Japan by River Cruise. I'm Bobby Judo. Hello, I'm Ollie Horn. Look, it's us again on your podcast player. Who would have thought it? It was even odds whether we would. <laughs> <laughs> but, we, but we did. And we are bringing back guests. Joining us this episode is Oleg Benish. Japanese historian and castle fanatic, and he's also very well known for his advocacy work towards the preservation of castle moats. Oleg, that's work that Ali and I would love to get behind, but to be honest, in this day and age, I can't really think of a single thing that a moat would be good for. Can can you? Um... <laughs> <laughs> Got him. We are going to be hearing from Oleg later in the show, but before we do so, Bobby, let's you and I go into our private booth we haven't got to come up with a good boating terminology for this yet but our our, our under the boat cabin our dinghy as, we're gonna we're gonna uh, we'll leave. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna take a little excursion on the dinghy and uh and we'll we'll be back with you Oleg, in just a little bit so bobby let's unchain our favorite swan boat from the dock and uh have a little chat about what we're gonna talk about in the show. so bobby what's coming up on the show well, uh, this time around, we will be dipping our toes into the cold, unforgiving current of our new monthly format. So we're going to do our best to do one of those eps where we don't talk about the latest ultra-depressing apocalyptic event. Uh, to wit, we'll be talking about some of Japan's most famous castles, uh, and not just the main one, uh, Disney's. Plus, later in the show, Ali will be giving his River Cruise recommendation. Isn't that right, Ali? Well, Bobby, given that we took an unexpected hiatus, a number of River Cruises that we promised to do paid promotion for have asked for refunds uh, of their sponsorship deals. So I'd like to take the time in this episode to mourn the loss of the Nara City Boat Tour, who were counting on us to shift tickets for their February the 1st launch. Uh, mm. Instead, they sold just three tickets uh, and so turned their cruise into an Edinburgh Fringe venue instead. Oh, so that's actually a, a pretty successful number of tickets sold. <laughs> it is, it is. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'd also like to say sorry to the uh, Horsagawa UK-Japan Friendship River Cruise, who pulled their sponsorship on the show when I explained to them during what were quite friendly negotiations they should probably dial back the Queen Elizabeth II branding, given that 2022 is the year that she will pass, kickstarting the UK into its inevitable and desirable transition into a republic. And we should point out that you said that in response to them asking whether or not you liked British ale. Uh, yeah, and I don't. There's a reason why we've invented new drinks since. And finally, I need to apologize to Apple, who paid us a considerable amount of money to advertise their Apple special event river cruise in Tokyo. I can't believe I managed to keep the contents of the NDA secret for all this time. Yeah, you you were aware of their top secret iPhone launch details the entire time? Yeah, honestly, I couldn't sleep knowing that they'd revolutionized the iPhone by making a green one. Uh, I was one of the handful of people in the world who was privy to this super secret, very important info. Sounds like a real nightmare. And speaking of nightmares, uh, while we were away, my Japanese River Cruise news desk got stacked so full of incoming industry news items that it actually sank the boat we were using as our office. So that's oh. the reason I won't be doing a full rundown later in the show. Also, sincere apologies to the families of the secretarial staff we were employing. That's on us. Good. And on that note, Bobby, let's jump into this new style, Soap Talk. Uh, we've managed to convince Brian to come back 
and join us again in the studio on the condition that he gets a full on-air apology for abandoning him for all of these weeks. Brian, we are sincerely sorry, and if you can find it in your heart to forgive us, just, just maintain your silence. Thank you. <laughs> right, Bobby, we've got loads to catch up on. Uh, the first thing, uh, you called me out for what you described as a problematic joke. Here we go. Let's open this can of worms. <laughs> I, did not, I didn't say it was a problematic joke. I said it was a really bad note to leave off on considering what happened after. Yeah, exactly. So the, the last show that we managed to get out, which was some point in uh, end of January, right? I... Um, like I made a, the the River Cruise recommendation I made was uh, a Russian themed one where I made the joke uh, Crimea River, which is uh, it, it was a Trojan pun. horse joke. It was it was the premise was that Russia was launching a, a cruise into the Ukraine and it was yeah on the premise yeah. of a cruise and that it was going to be invading and and the yeah, exactly and the reason that it was a, I thought was a good bit of parody was right Russia at that point had put tanks on the border of ukraine and everyone all sensible people going yeah but they're not actually going to invade ukraine are they and so i thought that was a good river cruise parody uh a little bit behind the curtain there not all the river cruise recommendations are real <laughs> um, <laughs> i thought that was funny because it was pointing out the absurdity of like the fact that we're not talking about the fact that russia's obviously about to invade ukraine but we'd all persuaded ourselves that they hadn't and now russia has invaded invaded ukraine we're like well who could have seen that coming well obviously all the people that ignore the fact that russia was literally putting tanks on the ukrainian border and crucially putin was basically saying i plan to invade ukraine well, yeah, I don't know if this is a hindsight thing, like what the current events are coloring the way I remember it, but I don't think I remember everybody in the world going, oh, they're never going to invade. I feel like it was a real concern. Yeah, I think, well, I think you're right. I think it was a concern, uh, but it was a dis it was a concern that was discounted in the same yeah. way that right now everyone's discounting the threat of nuclear weapons. What a fucking what a nasty way to Oh, God. To keep oh, God. Again. So, like, we wanted, so, we wanted to keep this positive, I know, but yeah, Jesus. like, we, we discussed this between, between us, like, and we got messages kind of saying, like, we enjoy the parts where you keep it, you know, a little bit less political. We enjoy kind of the banter. We enjoy some of the fun stuff. Uh, and there's, there was so much, we were doing so much current events and news, and all of the news was COVID anti-government the olympics are terrible the world is terrible and and like we wanted to kind of step back into doing this with just a light show and the day that we set our recording like like what like two hours ago the, yeah the, the democratic republic of korea just launched the 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 what was it the dprk <laughs> democratic people's republic of korea yeah. launched their 12th missile launch this year yeah yeah. Well, I, I, I guess that that is kind of what flavored the show that we would basically be doom scrolling Twitter. And when you have a podcast such as ours, you can take your doom scrolling to the next level by feeling really despondent and really sad and thinking I can do nothing about the state of the world. And then using our JBRC pod Twitter account, reach out to a world leading expert to verify that we are right to be this anxious uh, and this concerned about the state of the world. And so that's kind of the cycle that we've got ourselves into. Every week, we just invite a new expert journalist or academic or celebrity to affirm that in their niche, we are right to be scared. And you know, I feel like we did focus so much on current events that we got we got distracted from uh, kind of the personal aspect of it. 
we used to do a lot more, you know, soap talk was just kind of like a catching up. How's your comedy shows doing? How, how was your life in Japan going? And yeah. I think we just started getting a caliber of guests who were so interesting that we felt like if we didn't focus on everything that they had to share, that it was kind of, uh, kind of multi nai. It was kind of a waste of, of having them on. Yeah. And, and, and it's, and that kind of multi nai feeling is something that quite a few comics uh, certainly in Europe have been talking about that when faced with like an actual war in Europe that's actually currently happening and when faced with the fact that like COVID's still a thing and people are still dying and when faced with you know the fact that there's still really scary right-wing movements uh, all around the world and like all the things that we should be worried about lest yeah. we forget climate change lest we forget the fact that we can't afford to put uh, petrol in our cars right? all the stuff which makes us feel like what's the point there's a an interesting chat that's happening in comedy green rooms at the moment, which is, is our job as comedians, and I guess more broadly podcasters, uh, like, is it less important or more important? <laughs> like, like is are we supposed to go, well, obviously, well, obviously we should stop worrying about, you know, the, the sound quality and which jingle we should use and just go and pick up a rifle and, and head to the Ukrainian border. <laughs> or, or, or actually, like, is, like, I don't know, like, it, it, were comedians important during World War Two? I guess they were. Like musicians were. I don't know. It, it's a it's a funny thing because I've had thoughts where I'm like, well, I should just quit everything. I should just quit everything. Um, and for those of you that know me personally, and those that listen to that little very brief little snippet I did the other week, know that uh, my personal life hasn't been uh, hasn't been double thumbs up. Let's put it that way. Um, and so I've and so comedy has kind of seen like seen has been seen as a bit of an indulgence, I guess from my perspective same with the podcast it's like well mm. is this something that we do as an indulgence for for fun but then of course and without wanting to sound all bloody holy and preachy we do get the odd message from people who uh say that they really enjoy the show or i had someone come up to me after a show two weeks ago saying um it was a regional show in the uk so it was one of these comedy clubs that happens like once every six months in the village hall you know and like the clowns just turn up in a car and it's like everyone from the village is there and mm. there was a lady who was almost in tears. She was like, I've been an NHS nurse. It's been uh, the hardest two years of my life. You know, I've I've lost family members. This was the first time I've gone out and I really needed this. And little moments like that made me think, ah, okay, maybe, just maybe, like there's a, you know, I, I can justify yeah, what I'm yeah. doing more broadly than this is an act of self-indulgent. I think that's true. And I think it's also okay that it's self-indulgent. You go, everything's shit, so I should just quit. I should just quit. You know, there's climate change. There's corona. There's all of this stuff is going wrong. There's, you know, the world on the brink of World War Three. I should just quit. It, but, like, then what do you do? Well, you got to do something to pass the time until <laughs> until we all die. <laughs> like, yeah. What's, yeah. what's the point? It, it's okay that it's self-indulgent. I mean, you've got to do something to enjoy yourself. You've still got a life you got to get through. Yeah. And, and hopefully with this new monthly cadence for the show, we're going to allow ourselves a little bit more space to... Well, let's, let's little... just talk. I mean, how's life? All kinds of stuff is going on over here, man. Uh, right. So... Let, well, let, let's catch up then. So my my girls graduated preschool. Yeah. So that's the first thing. So you were like, oh, I can't I can't have a chat about the show yesterday. My girls have graduated preschool. I remember yeah. when these little children were born. How yes. how dare they graduate they preschool? They're six. They're starting they're starting elementary school next month. It's insane. They can read. They can read Japanese and English. Uh, Ami read uh, Green Eggs and Ham all by herself the other day. Actual humans. It's yeah weird, isn't it? 
It's nuts. And how does it feel that they're starting an actual school? Uh, good. Really, really good. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. The graduation is interesting. A preschool graduation. Um, we, we went to the service. The service. <laughs> they didn't die. They graduated. <laughs> we went to the ceremony today. And, uh, and they said, you know, the preschool kids are all going to march out now. Um, welcome them with a round of applause. And the kids marched out and there was no applause. No one was clapping. I, I did that very Japanese thing where you start to clap and then you realize no one else is clapping. So you stop yep. immediately. And I looked around and the reason no one was clapping was because everybody was filming it with their phones. Oh, of course. And I talked about it with my wife afterwards. And I was like, it's just so weird to me that like there's no clapping and there's nobody watching it with their eyes because everyone's looking through their phones. Everyone's touching their phones. And mm. she was like, yeah, well, you're touching your phone too. And I was like, yeah, but I'm not filming. I'm playing Candy Crush. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point, isn't it? Uh -huh. Yeah. The, 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 what, you know, what's the point in documenting a moment if you weren't there in the first place? Yeah. And also, you don't, nobody ever watches it later. You're not going to, well, you're exactly. not going to, yeah, exactly. Well, I thought, you know, I had exactly that thought. I was walking around uh, a market yesterday in Barcelona, which is where I am. Little, um, little name drop there. That's where I am. Um, and <laughs> don't, don't do it like that. Do it like you did when we first got on the call. If you're going to name drop what? it. How did I do it? How did I do it that way? <laughs> you, you said, I've just got my setup here in Barcelona. <laughs> like BCN. Yeah. Uh, but going back to you, so in addition to your kids graduating uh, preschool, you've also moved house? Yeah, yeah. We are officially moved in and settled in in Karatsu now. Um, Where's Karatsu, for those that don't know? Karatsu is in Saga on the border of Fukuoka. So it's actually not that far from where we used to live in Itoshima. In fact, for the last month we've been living here, but they've been commuting to preschool in Itoshima just so they could kind of graduate with their friends. Right. And it's and quite actually, easy to get to, isn't it? Because I remember doing to get to. quite a bit of work for Saga TV getting to Karatsu yeah. and taking the main like subway line. Like that train, just yeah, some yeah. of the services just continue all, all the way to Karatsu. Well, Karatsu is big, so it's big. And we live on the side that's the closest to Fukuoka and we live up in the mountains, but like you can get directly off the highway and uh, just like, like take a little road five, 10 minutes up into the mountains and we're right there. And so my commutes to work are actually, um, one of them is shorter because I'm closer to like the bypasses and the highways. And right. the other one is just shorter because we're geographically closer to the main building in Saga City. So I've moved farther away and my commutes have gotten shorter. So in, in theory, can you get on the, the Kukosen, the airport line, the one which goes through Main Ohama straight from your local station? Uh, well, I've been driving everywhere. Oh, okay, but fine, fine. Yeah, no, we'd be we'd be a little a little bit of a, a bus ride from the closest train station, but um, right, the okay. house is really big and really nice, and we fixed we fixed it up. It's one of the, the kinds of things that you could only do because it's out in the countryside. Um, it's huge. There's so much space, and we've just had the extra money because it was cheaper because it's in the countryside to put in the renovations, and it's fabulous. It's really really mm. nice. And um, Ami and Louis, like for the first time, have kind of like noticed that the space and the design of the place that we live is different from the people around us and have started to wonder whether or not we're rich. And they, <laughs> they asked the other day if we were rich because our house was so big. And I had to be like, well, 
if we had the house and still had money, we'd be rich. <laughs> like, right, right, like, right. But, but that's not how it worked out. And, You're uh, about to start real school, so let me talk to you about the um, yeah. the concept of assets and yeah. depreciation. Let's go. It's like we we are not okane mochi. We are okane mota. It's past tense. <laughs> it's like we had the money. Now we don't. We have a house. But we yeah. no longer have the money. But but you, you the house which you lived in, which I I visited fairly often and i think i stayed over a couple of times it yeah. wasn't big enough to raise a family with two growing daughters was it It was good for a couple of babies but now these are like real people uh so i mean it depends on what your standards are i think our old house by japanese standards was also really big um was it I mean, it was yeah it was a five bedroom yeah i guess yeah yeah we never let you into the upstairs <laughs> <laughs> You told oh you told me those those uh, child gates were for Amy and Louis. But just for just for context, the old house was a five bedroom, and this house is uh, an eleven bedroom. Okay, how many more kids are you planning to have? None, <laughs> none. But we're turning we're turning half of it into uh, an Airbnb and uh, barbecue place. So yeah, so we're only we're only using uh, half of the half of the eleven bedroom for our family. And then the rest we're going to kind of turn into a business. Very nice. Well, I'm sure lots of Japan by River Cruise listeners will eventually make their way there. To the, it's the Tamashimagawa is the river that we are directly on. Okay. And the obvious question is, are there cruises yet? Uh, there, we'll, we'll set a couple planks out. You can float on the planks. It's <laughs> good enough for me. Good. All right. Well, that's that's that caught up with. What else? Um, what other big stuff has happened? Uh, in the UK, we got rid of COVID. So that's good. That's no longer a thing. Oh, uh, cool. Completed that. How'd you yes. do that? Uh, just, uh, just wish it away. And Japan still hasn't opened its borders. Uh, it kind of has. It kind of has. Uh, people are coming in again. Students are getting their visas approved. Uh, our friend JJ, who was one of our first guests, uh, JJ Wakrat, a comedian in Tokyo, yeah, yeah, uh, moved to Canada and he's coming back to visit in just a couple of weeks. And I guess he's on what basis? He's not a tourist, so he still has residency status. But uh, right. now you don't even have to quarantine if you have all three vaccinations, if you're vaxxed and boosted, and if you test negative once you get into the country. You don't even have to quarantine. That's very good news. Well. I don't. I think I told. I have told you this, but I might as well just uh, make it public. I've speculatively bought a flight for January next year. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm taking a bet that by that point, tourists will be allowed in. So uh, if we're if we're gonna if there's gonna be a Japan by River cruise live recording and or boat trip and or me eating all of your barbecue, it's gonna happen. Uh, during the last two weeks of January next year. So hopefully by then, borders will have fully opened up. That's the hope, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, my my mom was planning to come over with some family. Uh, last year was the year that she was going to make her third trip over. Um, first, since Ami and Louis were born. But that didn't happen. And then she was going to do it yeah, this year. And that's not going to happen. So hopefully... But presumably, as, as, the, as the grandparent of Japanese children, there's no special visa rights, no, no, isn't no, it? She has to no. come in as a if tourist. It was, no. If it was a mother or father, then then you could probably work out some emergency. But yeah. grandparents now. Okay, good. Well, I think that's... I mean, there's loads of other stuff we could have caught, caught up on, but we can we can save that to the next episode. I think that's the main stuff. Other yeah. than that, we're both ticking along. We're, we're more or less there. I may, um, I may next month be uh, 
chiming in from a different location yet again. Um, fingers I've kind crossed. Of accidentally, accidentally become nomadic. Yeah, fingers are crossed. Are you are you uh, getting any closer to getting your own place? Uh, yes and no. Um, I'm, tr- uh, you know, very very long story short, I've been trying really really hard to get my own place for uh, a very long time. Uh, it's not very affordable, and uh, the circumstances that I have are that, you know, for the longest time, a lot of my net worth was just tied up in like foreign cash that I just got from gigs. Uh, yeah. So, like, persuading a a mortgage lender that I am not um, going to be one of the main uh, vectors of the next uh, international credit crisis uh, has been a challenge, um, and there's been just various other you know problems and what have you but i'm trying trying really really hard um and so hopefully if if, it, if it's going to happen at all uh it's going to happen next month and if it doesn't happen then fuck it i'll be you know i'll be fine yeah uh, but anyway we um yeah look, we're, we're ticking along i'm still i'm still gigging as often as i can um and if there's anyone in europe that is that is hoping to to watch me do some comedy uh then i do update my instagram ollie horn picks with with where i'm going to be so, uh, so there's that. And if you're a fan of the show, let me know before you come to a show and I'll make sure to bring some stickers along. So, uh, in fact, on the note of stickers and merch and coffees and whatever else, thanks uh, everyone that kept up their monthly subscription even while we took a month, which now has now become two months off. Uh, we appreciate it. If you want your money back, you obviously can. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just want to make that real clear. If anybody wants to ask for a refund based on on the fact that you bought a monthly subscription or you expected monthly... Uh, you expected weekly shows or weekly extras, then please feel free to ask. We'll make it right. Yeah, and all we'll do is we'll we'll come up with a section in next week's show where we say your name and we... No, we absolutely no, won't. No, no, no. <laughs> We're not going to treat <laughs> like you like a, a pachinko parlor that's not following the government <laughs> COVID regulations. No, uh, but we, we do, we do uh, sincerely appreciate all of the messages that people uh, have sent. We got messages of encouragement from Anna, from B. Ryan, from Brian... Uh, from the guys at Sakamichi Brewing, from the guys at Ishikawa Summit to See, from uh, Romeo Marcantuoni, who's we'd love to have on as a guest sometime, from Jason Mitchell, from Smith and Tanaka, from many, many more people. Yeah, I got a handful of DMs as well, which I need yeah. to say thanks to those people of you know sending encouragement. Uh, it seems that like this was part of people's like weekly schedule to listen to our yeah. nonsense, uh, yeah, and yeah. it was missed. So, which is is very nice to know. And Ali, you sent me a review that I liked from uh, from Nick Chill nineteen, who said, "I love this podcast and I've been binging it. These guys are actually actually really funny, especially <laughs> Ali. So I wish they'd banter a bit more like the early episodes and maybe a little less politics slash social social justice. But I know Bobby is passionate about that stuff. Uh, I like that he identified you as funny, and I like that he identified me as the person who uh, who cares about, uh, as he puts stuff. it, stuff. <laughs> I know." That this, if if we had to distill every bit of feedback that we've ever got about this show, I think Nick Chill has got it like has got it pretty good. No one, literally no one, has ever sent us a message saying I love this podcast. Full stop, and that's it. There, <laughs> there has to be some kind of caveat or feedback or room for improvement. Um, and additionally, like I think he's he's right, but he's only like 70 percent right. It's like these guys are actually really funny. No, we are. Especially Oni, I don't think like I don't think it's true. I think actually Bobby is a better joke writer than I am. Um, I think I just care less and I take greater risks. Um, I wish they'd banter a bit more. How can we banter when we're both feeling sad? But we're feeling a bit better now, so um, certainly yeah. I am. Um, and so you know maybe we can banter a bit more, and we have more time for it now because these episodes are an hour long. A little bit less politics, social justice. Well, 
as we've mentioned, how can we not? Everything's political. <laughs> we'll, uh, uh, but thank you. We'll, we'll do our best. Right. In our new section, Bobby, let's find out. Oh, no, we already know. In that case, let's reaffirm who we've invited to the captain's table. <laughs> Joining us this time at the captain's table is Oleg Benish. Uh, we, we asked you here so we could talk about something educational, but not necessarily current or political. And in, in your email correspondence, your response was, castles are always current and political. Uh, so someone did not understand the assignment. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm notorious for not understanding assignments. <laughs> so, but, but that's a curious point. Why are Japanese castles political? Oh, um... Well, there's there's a few different reasons, and I mean, I guess that's one of the things. If they've been political probably since their very beginnings, I guess if we want to call it that, in the 16th century, in terms of why they're built. But what I tend to focus on more is their their modern history. I mean, you know, what happens to castles, you know, after the Meiji Restoration of 1868. Um, as most people who've been to Japan will know, Japan is covered with um, mainly concrete castles. Quite a few old wooden ones left over. Um, and there are a lot of attempts to rebuild castles at the moment. I mean, Nagoya is the most famous example of that. Um, and they've earmarked something like 50 billion yen to uh, tear down their concrete castle and rebuild it out of wood. Um, and this is an, yeah, a really big political debate in Nagoya and Japan more broadly at the moment. So who, who generally built castles in the first place? Because not all castles were military, right? Um, so if we go back far enough, I think they were fundamentally they all had military functions. Um, if we're looking right. back in the 16th century. Um, then after Japan gets unified around 1600, um, you know, the country is pacified, essentially. There's no major wars for about 250 years throughout most of the Tokugawa period. And they really are just kind of symbols of authority. Um, militarily, they're largely obsolete. Um, and, you know, it's warlords building them as these symbols of authority to kind of awe the local peasantry and such. Um, which, in a lot of ways, isn't actually that different from Europe or the rest of the world where we have this, these sort of fortifications. Well, I guess that was kind of my w what I was thinking, that when I think about kind of castles in the UK, obviously we've got like the really, really, really old castles that were used for military. But when I think about the quote-unquote castles from the last four or five hundred years, they're kind of like palaces, right? Like, like they're, 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 they're built by rich people or the royal family to say, look who's in charge. And I think that's true for like most of Western Europe as well. And I'm guessing something similar is true in Japan, that where a castle is not useful because no longer is war done with archers, it's like, like there's got to be some like greater reason why castles were built. And presumably that reason is the same reason that we want to preserve them too. Yeah, no, exactly. And I mean, a big part of it, it's very similar to Europe in a lot of ways. And if, if we look at early modern Japan, so around 1600 to late 19th century, um... You know, the Tokugawa shogunate that ruled the whole country, they were kind of holding together all these smaller domains. You know, there's over 250 of them and all these smaller warlords. And it, so that they don't get too strong, one thing that Tokugawa did is they would limit them to one castle each. And they were not allowed to modify that castle without permission. Um, they couldn't be, become too big. They couldn't become a threat to the Tokugawa. But they also had to maintain them at a certain level. Um, because the Tokugawa wanted them to spend money on these things mm. to also keep them weak and a bit poorer. 
I, I do remember when I was reading um, Amy Stanley's book, Stranger in the Shogun City, uh, she referred to this idea that basically all of the aristocracy and all of the kind of like political figureheads were in debt. They were all poor. And it was this system that was based on lending out money or borrowing money where you you could buy these fancy houses and live this fancy lifestyle, but it was all very closely tied to whether or not your your political currency was working or not and they could be shut off at any time yeah no that's and i mean yeah av stanley's book is excellent I, I, I definitely recommend that one and and that's the thing throughout the whole system you know debt is such an important part of it all the way through and you have this kind of fiction that you have like you know the warriors kind of the samurai class at the top with you know the shogun at the very top and then the merchants supposedly are at the bottom of this order but actually if you look at financially you know, the merchants are often far more better off than many of the samurai. And a lot of the samurai are unemployed, just scraping by. You know, the whole system is is not that healthy in a lot of ways. And it's interesting then when we see kind of the collapse of the Tokugawa in 1868 and the transition, one of the first things all of the warlords want to do is tear their castles down because these things are, are huge money sucks, as anyone who has a yeah. house knows. Yeah, so we're we're getting we're getting into like a bunch of different threads that I want to pick up and follow. But one thing that I wanted to ask was um, something that stumped me when I first started to do translation projects. I had to do a translation about Fukuoka Castle, and there was some unit of measurement that they used to express the size of the castle that I just didn't understand. And I found out much later that castle size or the scale of the castle was like expressed in how many bales of rice the castle oversaw in the region. Do you, are you familiar with this at all? Yeah, so um, I mean, the fundamental unit of kind of wealth for warlords in the, in the Edo period, so in the early modern period, is what's called the koku, and that is this bushel of rice. And yeah, so yeah. The more powerful you are, the more bushels of rice you are worth. And one bushel of rice is supposedly enough to feed one person for one year. And so if you are a major warlord who has, you know, 100,000 bushels of rice, yeah. then you are a huge figure. And I think if I'm remembering correctly, they would say that whoever was the, the daimyo of that castle had been appointed to a however many bushel castle pointed appointed uh, to oversee a castle that was worth however many bushels and i think i remember trying so hard like is this how many how much material was put into the building of the castle does this express the area of the castle somehow and it was actually kind of like the the area of their dominion that they were in charge of yeah no, that, i mean that makes good sense and i I think what the Tokugawa would allow people to build was probably closely tied to what their um, their kokudaka or their ko their value of bushels was. Um, is that and... is that true? Because I can see your face, and it looks like you're trying very hard not to tell me that I don't know what I'm talking about. No, no, I, I'm, I think that's <laughs> I I haven't come that across that specifically with castle size, but yeah. it makes complete sense because this becomes really these are really important units all the way through, and actually in the transition then going from Tokugawa into the Meiji period around the 1870s, when they transfer all the old like daimyo and these old titles into modern kind of international standards, European standards, like baron and duke and all of these things, they use the koku values to, to make right. someone a baron or a duke or a, a viscount or whatever else. Right, okay. Well, so while we're on the, like, while we're on the topic of money then, did, did, were people at the time happy that these castles were being built? Because we're talking about, what, late 16th century? 
when mm-hmm. Japan first got castles. I'm guessing at the time, uh, people were not living in very good conditions. They were like living <laughs> just like the expression, just like the expression when Japan first got castles. Like it's only <laughs> like somebody just showed up and gave them. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, they were like, "Well, you we know, we need castles." Well, I well mean, like, how did te- they get? How did Japan get castles? That's a good. Okay, that's good. Uh, that's a good first. Who gave Japan castles? Right. Why? Why does Japan <laughs> suddenly want castles? And then, secondly, who pays for them? And then, thirdly, other people who presumably aren't living in castles happy about the fact that they're living in squalor, and all of a sudden, down the road, there's a goddamn castle they're not allowed in. <laughs> yeah. I- I, I think there is a lot of dissatisfaction about castles in Japan, as most places, for those reasons you outline. Um, I mean, one thing is, to, I guess, to, that's important. Is, I mean, Japan has had castles for hundreds of years by this point, but they're generally like smaller kind of mountain fortification stockades. What we see in the late 16th century. Oh, this was like three changer. or four bales of rice kind of castles. <laughs> yeah, pretty about, much. Right? Yeah. 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 I mean, the big game changer, though, is these giant keeps, like these things you see that really define all the castles that we see now. If we think of a Japanese castle, we see this giant wooden white structure, which is often like five or six stories high. I mean, something like Himeji yeah. Castle is a great example yeah, yeah. of that. And those are the late 16th century. And okay. there are these these ideas that, you know, did, did castles arrive from Europe with um, the Jesuits that were in Japan at the time? Um, and that was something that was widely believed in Japan really up until the 19th and the end of the 20th century. Um, that Japanese castle building that. was influenced by the Jesuits? Exactly. That European castle building ideals essentially arrived in Japan. That, you know, <laughs> the, you've got the moats, you've got the walls, you've got these keeps. These are suddenly a new thing that arrive at the same time that the Europeans do. But why? Huh. But they turn up and they're like, you want a castle? They're like, but what possibly could we need a castle for? Is this the monorail of the 16th century? <laughs> Yeah, and, and um, yeah, it becomes similarly obsolete, I guess. But they, uh, I, I think the the initial thing is to remember is the late 16th century. I mean, Japan is generally at at war, and so you know that right. also affects kind of the state that most people are living in. And you mm-hmm. know, a lot of the castles are being built by kind of conscripted labor and such. Those people are probably right. not very happy building these things. Um, and so, you know, new castle designs are coming out of this this warfare. It's the first time you get firearms in Japan. So there are a lot of factors coming together there. I don't think there's a so, lot of evidence that these things were actually brought from Japan or Europe, but... Right. So castles weren't primi- primarily built... Primarily... It's been a while since I've done any kind of professional talking. Primarily... Bobby, help me out. Pri- primarily. 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 Okay, good. So castles, I'm good at this, aren't I? So castles Just say it's a British pronunciation. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so castles weren't mainly built for the aesthetic or for the dick swinging, but rather there was some kind of military objective. If that's the case, why don't we see more military features in castles? Like, what? I don't know, what? I'm thinking like medieval drawbridges and stuff. Well, you do see military features in castles. I mean, they're not necessarily in line with what you'd expect from European warfare, but most castles do have moats. Most castles do have kind of like windows built in for attacks. They all have kind of like lookout towers. Well, I'm guessing those things are mutually exclusive. Right. Because I'm guessing that distinctive slope, you know, like you always see that really beautiful curve on the bottom of Japanese castles, by the way. I'm guessing that's to stop people climbing up. I'm guessing that's not just aesthetic. Yeah. And uh, that's often tied to earthquake proofing as well, that if you built a sheer vertical wall, like a lot of European castles have, that wouldn't survive an earthquake. 
Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, okay. And so that that's one of the things. I mean, there's a lot of different reasons kind of given for that. But I, I think that's an important point you make about there's a balance there between kind of the military necessity for certain things, certain aspects of the castle. But then also, yeah, it is just to show off. If you can build this giant wooden keep, which, you know, yeah. is quite flammable in a lot of ways, you know, that's a way to just show off how powerful yeah. you are, actually, especially if you mm. paint it white and or, you know, yeah. some of the early ones were gold and red and all sorts of other things. So um, if you can show off that way, um, but then have these big walls outside of it. I don't know if we got to all of your questions, Ali, but I really liked that that fourth one about uh, what what did the poor people think of this? It reminded me of that scene in Monty Python where the peasants are talking about the king and they're like, well, I didn't vote for him. <laughs> they yeah. didn't really have a say in what went on, Ali. Well, yeah. Oh, and, oh, yeah, obviously they didn't. But, like, you can... Okay, the way, I often think this when I go and see, a, like, a really beautiful church in the UK, right? Particularly when you go to a regional one. Because, like, there was a bit of wealth in the cities. But you go to a regional beautiful cathedral in the UK. They're magnificent, right? And you're just thinking, this was built 400 years ago, right? Where people were living in utter squalor. But at least the church did do like community outreach. Sometimes it would do education. Sometimes you could go there for food. Like also God was there as well. So like that helped. Yeah, so yeah. like I can, I kind of get that like these enormous great big uh, like building projects uh, like, like maybe wouldn't have annoyed people as much. But a castle, like regular people aren't allowed in it. They don't necessarily see the benefit unless they're being invaded. And even if they are being invaded, like they're not seeking refuge in it. Like, I, I, was there any kind of, like, debate as to whether money or resources, let's say, and if uh, resources is a euphemistic term for slave labor, could be put to better use? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's hard to get at a lot of the sources from especially kind of peasants and the people who are really being exploited in terms of what their views towards castles are, because, I mean, there's a lot of censorship. This would be a very sensitive subject. We do yeah. know that a lot of things don't get rebuilt. I mean, like the Great Keep of Edo Castle, for example. I mean, the Shogun's own castle burns down in the late 17th century, and they never rebuild it because it's mm. you know they think it's it's too expensive, it's a waste of money. Um, but what is really interesting is if you go to any castle in Japan today, you know they will tend to have inside like a museum, and you've got some swords and some armor and a bunch of things about like the warlord and kind of the samurai history there. Very few of them actually talk about like the peasant history. And very few of them talk about all the peasant uprisings that took place during the early modern period. I mean, yeah. there's hundreds and thousands that take place of peasant uprisings throughout yeah. Japan. A lot um, of the Japanese history that I read is kind of very concerned with putting down peasant uprisings. Yeah, but you don't see those. There's only one or two exhibits in like the hundreds of castles in Japan now that actually deal with like peasant uprisings and actually talk about that side of things. Mm. The rest mm. of it is much more the, you know, warlords, samurai, weapons, armor um which you know in a lot of ways is similar to the uk if you go to most castles you know they are talking about the aristocracy it's about knights and aristocrats and this and that and and you don't talk about you know the peasants in that monty python scene it's almost it's almost like rich people write the history huh, i'll have to give that some more thought i don't know you're <laughs> blowing my mind <laughs> all right so we've got so we've got the first castles we've got the first big castles in japan late 16th century early 17th century Right. Why? Why did there become so many? Were, was Japan worried about outside uh, invasion at this point, or was it worried about keeping territory internally? What's the reason that there's loads of castles? It it's effectively just this kind of internal system that you know the Tokugawa shogun is kind of the most powerful of all of these you know two hundred fifty something warlords around Japan, 
Um, and, you know, they're, they're kind of just maintaining this. And at least on the surface, even though the country is at peace for over 250 years, you know, it's, it's officially organized like a military state. You know, the shogun is the great general and the others are like kind of lesser generals. And, you know, it, it's obvious kind of looking at what happens in European developments in terms of warfare, that castles in Japan are obsolete. And so what we do see in the 1860s then is a few attempts to modernize things. They, they put steel plates on a few castles mm -hmm. to see if that would right. make a difference when, when you get these threats from the Americans and others. Um, and that's also where you get the building in the 1860s of, of these star forts, like the Goryokaku in uh, Hakodate up in Hokkaido, if anyone's been to that. It's mm -hmm. like this modern European-style star fort, which you know you would recognize from the UK or the Netherlands or other places. It's... Um, and so there's a couple of those things built as kind of concessions, but everyone realizes that castles are militarily obsolete. It is just kind of, a lot of it is just for show by that point. It, it's embarrassing, but I've been uh, watching a lot of sci-fi recently, and it took me a second to realize that a star fort was not a space station. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to go back to this idea that you were talking about, you know, you first became drawn to this topic when you realized that Japan was kind of covered in these concrete castles. And I didn't really, I don't think I really realized that. I think the farthest that I went with it was uh, when I was placed originally in Saga Prefecture, somebody took, to, took me to see Saga Castle. And one of the first questions I asked was, how long has this been there? And they said, since the 80s since the 1980s <laughs> and and I didn't my curiosity didn't go any further than that it just kind of shut off it was like oh this isn't a real castle and I didn't put any further thought into it beyond that and and now <laughs> that thinking, you've oh, mentioned this is it just now that boom I've... era folly this is yeah, just some yeah. salary man that's made his money in Tokyo that's thought well do you know what <laughs> how can I make my mark back in saga but but so Oleg, why was there a castle in Saga that was built out of concrete in the 1980s, and why is this a phenomenon that we see in other places in the country? Well, I, I think that's a really good point. I think your reaction is actually is actually the one I I had initially. You know, I first moved to Japan around 2000, I think, and you know the first time I went to a couple of castles, Nagoya, Okazaki. You know, there were these concrete things, and from the outside it was like, oh, that's interesting. And I went inside, and it's it's just kind of institutional. Mm -hmm. you know, modern concrete building. And it's it was pretty unexciting. And that's where my mind switched off as well. Um, I did like, you know, kind of visiting them as I, as I traveled around Japan, but I wasn't that interested in them for the longest time. And then I met uh, my, yeah, my friend Ron Zweigenberg in 2013. And he's actually the one that really picked up on a lot of this stuff because he, he's, he's written a lot of work on um, Hiroshima. And when he was investigating the development of the Peace Park in Hiroshima in the 1950s, he discovered in the newspapers that there were all these debates and controversies that as they're trying to create this world peace city in Hiroshima and building the peace park, and they've got Tange Kenzo building all the memorial and everything else, just a couple hundred meters to the north, there are these guys rebuilding this castle out of concrete, which is like mm. the symbol of mil militarism and the pre-war. Mm. And they're like, stop it. This is not our brand now. You know, mm. we're, we're about peace. We're about these other things. And there's this huge conflict going on, these tensions in Hiroshima really from the 50s onward. Yeah. Um, and so Ron picked up on this, and then he and I started kind of talking about this. And yeah, I mean, we've never worked on this for almost 10 years together. We should, we should take a second here to give a shout out to Ron, because um, I met him recently. He, his son goes to my daughter's preschool, and uh, I ran into them in the supermarket. I ran into his family in the supermarket, and he's Israeli. And his, mm -hmm. his son that's in my daughter's preschool is very distinctive looking. It's like full blonde curly hair, 
which stands out a lot. So I recognized his kid instantly and started talking to the mom. And the mom was like, oh, yeah, our kids go to the same preschool. Uh, and my husband's a big fan of your show. And he came over, and I started talking to him about the show. And I was like, how would you find out about our show? And he was like, oh, I co-wrote the book with Castles. Uh, I co-wrote the book on Castles with Oleg. <laughs> it's like, that's that's not that's a great. fan of the show. That's a that's that's a that's a guest candidate right there. That's a that's a colleague. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this mad. You should you should be carrying stickers around with you, Bobby. When these moments happen, we've really got to leverage them. You should, I, I did. Got... I, I think I did give him a sticker, but it was a Bobby's barbecue sticker. <laughs> right. okay. The question okay. is, which one of you asked for a signature first? For an autograph. <laughs> I actually, I think, um, so he, one of his main fields of study has something to do with uh, Japanese nuclear works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's essentially on, um, he, he started doing a lot of work. His first book was on Hiroshima and kind mm -hmm. of like the origins of kind of global memory culture, how the atomic bombing should be one of the things that, you know, the entire world should remember. Yeah. And putting this in the context of um, kind of Auschwitz and, and other things, these kind of global memory events. And yeah, we, we um, talked for... a little bit about um, about having him on the show potentially. And he was like, my research area might be a little bit dark. And I was like, I, I think we could do it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'd, we'd find a way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, and I don't think it takes takes two geniuses to work out how watching genocide happen and potential nuclear war we can somehow tie to current like to today's news <laughs> try, try to shoehorn that in i think we've probably managed that um good well that's nice well isn't that nice to know that we had listeners i wonder if we still do uh, after this break uh, well thanks for sticking <laughs> through the episode so far this this longer section right i am going to return back to um the hiroshima castle re rebuilding point because i think that raises a couple of interesting issues firstly uh Forgive me if this is a stupid question, but are all of these castles being re rebuilt because they were destroyed by the war? No, and I mean, that's that's a really important point. There's this kind of idea that, you know, Japan has all these concrete castles because all of the originals were destroyed in the war. Um, that's what I thought. Really, you know, Japan has, you know, probably, and if we're talking about castles, I mean, I'm mainly talking about castle keeps at this point, you know, these big white structures in the middle. Yeah. Um, you know, Japan has about, you know, probably somewhere between 60 and 100. There's various definitions of these structures kind of at the time of the Meiji Restoration, like around 1868. And the first thing they want to do, again, these things are expensive, is they just want to tear them down. You know, they're just these embarrassing reminders of the feudal past. This is a time you're moving into civilization and enlightenment. You're bringing in European ideals. You're trying to be westernized. And they just start tearing all these things down. And so you end up with only about 20 of them left at the turn right, of the 20th okay. century. And then about seven or eight are destroyed in the Second World War by bombings. And now we've got about 12 left. Hmm. Okay. So why were they expensive to maintain once they were up? Um, I mean, they are huge wooden structures. You get storms, you get um, fires, you get earthquakes. I and mean, we just saw Kumamoto, you know, the 2016 earthquake. Yeah, yeah. Um, all the damage, damage that did. Yeah, all the walls, the keep. And I mean, that was a concrete keep. You know, I don't know how a wooden keep would have would have fared in that. But, are you know, are they being used for anything, like council buildings or like storage, or is there any purpose to them at all? Well, well, this is the other other side of it. They're mainly just storage um, the keeps militarily, but and you know then you've got like the daimyo and all and quite a lot of samurai living in the castle who are all obsolete. You know, once you have the new imperial government from eighteen sixty eight, and so you suddenly have these giant structures in the center of almost every Japanese city. 
which no longer has a purpose. Right. And so you end up tearing down all the old buildings. You build modern schools, modern city halls, administrative buildings. And you also put the military in there because you're now creating a new imperial army to take the place of the former samurai right. and, and daimyo. And so most of these castles in major cities like Fukuoka turn into military bases. I understand why people would want to tear them down then. But presumably there was also some calls to keep them, even if Japan was ashamed of its military past or the fact that these represented Japan, that Japan no longer wants to be. There are going to be the preservists, uh, conservativists who say, well, we should we should keep hold of them. And I guess like just a quick interjection. I think you mean conservationist and preservationist because a conservatist sounds like somebody who conserves things and a preservist sounds like somebody who makes jam. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. I'm, I'm not claiming to be on form. Let me be quite clear. Uh, I, hey, I'm attempting the big words. And sometimes, I, oh, like you teach at a university level. Wouldn't you rather that I attempt to use a big word and get it wrong than not? Oh, that's a that's a tough question. Because then I have to go look up the big word. That's more, that's more work for me. <laughs> right. Okay, so we've got people making but, jams. Uh, and we've uh, we've got uh, the, the political right, the conservativists. Right. The question I'm trying to ask is, <laughs> also, there was a, a, a semi-important point, which is, aren't there international legal obligations too? Like, at this point, is UNESCO not involved? No, I mean, we're, t we're talking about the 1870s. And at this point, oh, okay, you know, there's, right, very, right. there's very little interest in conservation. And I mean, that's important to note that, you know, in Japan, there's... People are really happy to get rid of these these castles they are seen as this kind of embarrassing reminder of the past that japan's trying to get away from it's also yeah. an incredibly anti-samurai period i mean no one sees the samurai as a model for anything in the 1870s and 1880s mm. and it's right. really only when these kind of japanese delegations start going to europe a lot more and seeing that hey europe's got all of these castles and like the queen lives in windsor castle and actually maybe there's some value to these things that this starts getting reconsidered and you have a lot of europeans um and americans who are in japan at the time and they are going to these castles and are obviously valuing them and photographing them and so that's where you start getting these ideas about conservation and preservation um, and jam but the other thing that i'd like to note though is that japan is not an outlier here i mean these ideas are very much still developing in europe at the time like just mm -hmm. um, up the road from me here in newcastle you know they they wanted to tear down the Newcastle Castle um, to build a train station on top of it. And they did end up tearing down most of the castle, but they built a train station next to it and kept the keep. But that's something you find all over Europe at this time. So, I mean, Japan in, in a lot of ways is just kind of going with, you know, global trends. Just before we move on, I'm going to have to ask, why is, is that why Newcastle's called Newcastle? Because they got a Newcastle? Obviously it is. But do you know any more than that? Um, no, I mean, that is why it is called Newcastle, but I don't know when new was new in Newcastle's case. <laughs> I think right, it's well, a few anyway, years we, ago. We brought a castle expert on, Bobby. We did our best. I, I'm curious about kind of ideas about historical preservation in Japan because I've also been kind of surprised by the castle history. On, on it. I'm curious about like the idea of historical preservation in Japan because I've been surprised by the way they treat castles and their history from both sides. You know, I was surprised to find out that they built a concrete castle in the 80s. Fukuoka Castle, I also did a, a TV report a while back where they uncovered the outer wall of the original Fukuoka Castle moat. And there's a place where you can go down underneath the sidewalk and they've got a little staircase set up where you can see this excavated area where they've found the old moat wall. 
And when I was doing the report, they said they found this during subway construction in like the 60s and they had no record of what it was or that it was there. And I couldn't believe that something like a major castle, like Fukuoka Castle, they wouldn't have maps and surveys and records of, of where the things were. And they were just like, Japan didn't keep those. They got rid of all of it. Yeah, I mean, a lot was lost. I mean, through um, just destroyed fires, various other things. So we have lost a lot. Um, I think that's one of the things that's really shifted over the last hundred years, though, is attitudes towards, I think what we're looking for is authenticity with, I mean, there's preservation, which is kind of keeping old, old buildings around. Um, then there's reconstruction, you know, whether out of concrete or out of wood. But I think one thing that that's important to note in the case of castles, like with temples or shrines in Japan, is the fact that these things are made of wood and, you know, you can't really have a thousand year old wooden building with all the original timbers. Yeah. You know, those things have to be replaced every few hundred years. And that's the thing, like something like Himeji Castle, which had a huge renovation um, in the 60s. And there, there's been another renovation more recently. You know, they go in and they take out all the rotten timbers or things that need to re be replaced. They replace them with new ones. Um, but, you know, is that still the original Himeji Castle if all the timbers have been swapped out? I mean, it's kind of like the, the George Washington's axe thing you know yeah. it's had it's only had four new heads and eight new handles since he owned it but it's still the same axe yeah of course and presumably that it's not just about replacing the timbers it's also about making these buildings like earthquake proof based on our current understandings of uh how we should build buildings to prevent them from falling down or even something as well, simple as like wheelchair access yeah I guess Alex Alex Kerr also talked about this when he was on the show about just kind of Japanese architecture in general and how sturdy and how strong Japanese wood construction was, but how as soon as it falls out of use or as soon as you stop maintaining it, things start to go to rot. And so if you right. have these buildings that aren't actively in use and actively being maintained or it's too costly to actively maintain them anymore, they can quickly go from you know a very sturdy structure to ruin. Which is what happens in the 1870s and why so many of them are torn down, because, you know, people weren't interested in these things. They were obsolete. They were doing the bare minimum and, you know, five, 10 years of not doing anything. And these things were just ripe for being torn down. Um, right. Or, you know, there are places where they just want to Himeji, for example, I think they wanted to burn it down and just take the metal out of the ashes and salvage that, you know, yeah. in the 1870s. So we've got about a dozen castles now that have that didn't get torn down. And presumably these are now staying up forever. Right, like they're, they're, they're probably not going to go anywhere, not going to be re replaced by an Eon shopping mall or something. Are, are there people now that want got rid of them? Or uh, is there like, I mean, is UNESCO involved now? Yeah, so Himeji Castle is UNESCO World Heritage Site. Um, all of the original castles are like national treasures. Um, the Japanese government, they've designated that way. Um, there's no push to do anything with the, the kind of wooden castles, the original ones. The mm. issue is mainly now around the concrete castles, because most right. of these were built in the 1950s. And as people familiar with American road infrastructure know, concrete, you know, starts to age a bit after about 70 years and you need to do something. Mm. Right. Um, and so a lot of these like Nagoya, Hiroshima, a lot of these have either already been condemned or will be condemned soon. And either you repair the concrete um, no one really loves these concrete keeps, and it's either you repair that and spend millions, or you tear it down and rebuild it out of wood, um, which is what everyone wants, but it's incredibly expensive, 
And because of those issues, you know, that Ollie just touched on in terms of earthquake proofing, safety, fire safety, um, you know, accessibility, you know, concrete keep, you can have a wheelchair in that and, and you know, no one complains. Um, with the wooden ones, you know, there are big debates about accessibility, like, you know, um, like something like Nagoya Castle is the place where we have the most debate about that. But one thing I just want to say is one of the, the reasons, because Ollie mentioned this, one of the reasons they went with concrete, you know, so many of these are built in the 1950s and 1960s, the vast majority. And, you know, the memory of the war is still really fresh. Yeah. And so you want something that's going to last. And right. so you build out of concrete. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the main things behind it. That's also funny because it's on brand for Saga. If most of the castle reconstruction was done in the 50s and 60s, Saga is famous for getting all of the trends 20 years late. <laughs> it makes sense why they built theirs in the 80s. That's so funny. if we want to kind of abandon these these historically inaccurate concrete castles that were already controversial, then let's avoid controversy and build accurate wooden castles problem solved yeah i mean that that would be a thing i mean so one of the things here's so many of the concrete castles um are actually you know they call them reconstructions but they never actually existed like there was never a keep there i mean karatsu right, just right. down the road from you is an example right. of that you know they just decide oh everyone else has a castle keep so we need one as well um, right. and so a lot of a lot of places in the 50s and 60s just built these fantasies um, even something like Hiroshima, which did have a castle keep and knew exactly what it looked like. It got it was blown over by the A-bomb. Um, when they rebuilt it out of concrete, they're like, well, we're doing it out of concrete anyway, so we can make it a bit bigger and we can give it these fancier bits and make it look cooler than it did before. Right, right, right. Um, whereas now the real debate, you know, in, in especially like Nagoya, which is one of very few places where we do have all of these architectural drawings and we could really do it authentically, so to speak, you know, for various probably obvious reasons, you know, pre-modern castles were not the most accessible. Mm. Um, and so if you want, if you're using public money to rebuild a site, you know, yeah. should that be accessible for everyone? You know, should you be able to get, get wheelchairs um, and other access into these? So, the, I mean, as we discussed in the beginning of the show, these castles are originally built as military fortifications. If you're going to look at that and say, hey, it's not accessible, my response is, yes, because it's a good castle. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. If we're going by the original plans, only enter if you're part of the military. Only, only enter if you're a part of the military on the right side. <laughs> yeah, ex exactly. This would be a very easy justification to not allow foreign tourists in. You guys <laughs> were the reason that we built this in the first place. <laughs>